Welcome to Collector's Corner, the premier digital art platform. We help collectors gain and maintain their edge, all while appreciating beautiful art. Let's jump in. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Into the Collection. My name is P. I'm joined by my co-host, Jared, and we have our fantastic guest here today, Harvey Rayner, who created the amazing generative art collection, Fontana, and we're going to do a deep dive into Fontana. But before starting that, first you, Jared, real quick, how are you doing? And then Harvey, how are you doing today? I'm doing excellent. I have the whole week off leading into the Christmas holiday here in the States. So I've been playing with the boys all morning and uh, get to play in the snow later on. Hi, guys. Uh, Great to be here. I've been uh, busy preparing for Vellum. I drop in January. It's kind of uh, starting to enjoy the winter. Starting to are you are you a cold weather person, Harvey, or are you a warm um, weather person? Um, I never I used to hate the cold, but uh, since I've had my dog, you know, I walk him every day and he's kind of he's teaching me the joys of winter. So we go out in the snow every day and uh, I kind of like it now. <laughs> Speaking of walking the dog in Marfa, I don't know how many miles you logged on your uh Apple Watch here, buddy, but I mean, it seemed like everywhere we went, you were uh day or night. You had the dog on you, and it was uh, it was definitely taking you for a walk, man. It's impressive. Yeah, he takes. I get out for about two hours, two hours a day with him. But other than that, I'm in front of my computer, so you know, it's a good, it's a way of kind of keeping some balance. <laughs> good fresh air. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and for everybody listening, this is going to be a video episode. We're going to chat with Harvey, and then we have a Deca gallery set up. Uh, which is an online gallery for people who don't know, which has uh, images of a bunch of Fontana pieces that we've selected to talk through. You can check that out if you're listening on audio or afterwards. Otherwise, we recommend you listen by video. So with that house cleaning out of the way, yeah, let's let's go ahead and get started. So Harvey, so so much I'm intrigued. Like So as Jared alluded to, we, we met you at Marfa. We talked a bunch of times, but there's, there's so much more uh, that we want to explore. But we want, so we want to get a little bit into you and your background and how you kind of came to this point. And so for context, it's Monday, December 19th. Fontana is absolutely exploded in popularity. I would say a beacon in the generative art world doing what's been kind of a tough bear market, I think, for, for most people. But this, of course, didn't happen overnight. And I know that this is something that you have, you've been an artist for a long time. I was, I was reading one of your articles and you mentioned that you'd briefly gone to, to art school, but didn't uh, end up staying in the formal training, but were, have been making art for, for a really long time. So- okay, so, yeah, I, I don't really remember when it started because I've always made art, you know, even I've got drawings from when I was like two, three, four. And and it was a big deal for me even then, you know. I, I'm One of my earliest memories was like when I was, about three and I was at kindergarten and I was painting the pitch, two pictures and one of them, one of them I hated <laughs> and one of them I loved. And I, I, I took the one I hated and I screwed up and hid it under my chair and my, my mum found it and she tried to tell me that it was, you know, beautiful. And I can picture it in my mind and I wouldn't have it. I was, I was mortified that she found it. So, you know, imagery, making pictures has always been a big deal for me. It's always been important. And I think I've always had a strong sense of what I like. <laughs> so, 
yeah, I made I done a lot of drawing and, and painting at school, to, you know, to the point where that's all I would do when I got home, either that or play Lego. Went to art school. <clears throat> I always found I didn't work very well in a group. So because I would just want to talk. <laughs> so I quit, I quit after a year just so I could work by myself. It wasn't a good idea in terms of my career, but you know, I was exploring some pretty weird stuff back then. Even, you know, I was in Guinness math and making art from geometry. So, but the stuff I was making was was difficult. Just, you know, I took it to galleries and stuff, but they weren't really interested back then. They kind of thought, well, this is what's this graphic design? We weren't, they weren't quite sure. So I I never really in my late twenties, you know, after then I didn't really try to talk to galleries anymore. I just had other ways of earning a living. And but I've always made art for many hours every day. And you know, whenever I had space. What parts of math had you most intrigued, uh, you know, along your process? And I say that coming from like P and I are both have engineering degrees. So obviously there's a deep resonance with us on that, but you say weird, but I, it, it, to me, it seems normal. Right. Well, you know, I have no formal uh, training in mathematics. I mean, most of the stuff I've done is just sort of simple wave, wave functions and stuff, for plot and pixels and just lots of, you know, I use trigonometry daily, <laughs> but it's not, but I sort of like, I listen to a lot of podcasts about physics and math and just the, just the general ideas involved, you know, sort of like the big ideas, and, but not, not speci- I don't derive art specifically from, they're just a handful of sort of very mathematical objects I use, but, but they're not, they're not, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not breaking new grounds in mathematics. Don't worry, that makes two of us. I don't claim to be a mathematician, even though I spent way too much time in a mathematics classroom. I the it just it it always impresses me the more we talk to artists about their level of commitment to the craft and and really digging deeper into into algorithms and and the mathematics behind a lot of stuff. I mean, ironically, and Marfa, we met you and James from Ori at the same coffee shop and and you guys both talk are talking about like the amount of studying and detail to learn different mathematics behind things. And, and I, I say that simply to say, give you a nod that you may not claim to be a professional mathematician, but the, your hard work and, and diligence in, in studying the, the craft shows up uh, in the outputs. So Thank you for for all of that, and it's incredible the the devotion that you guys make in the process. I appreciate that. Um, I I just love what I do, and uh, I'll if there's something I want to accomplish, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes to, to to do that. So it all starts with a visual idea, and then sometimes I need to you know learn a little bit of extra math. Sometimes I often I don't, you know. Yeah, that's I, I love that. And as as Jared alluded to, I, I love the math side of things. I think that's uh I always like to think math is like nature's code and it's just kind of like a cool thing that we can discover. And I guess speaking of code, at what point did you start uh, creating art with code? And uh, before that, what were you doing? Oh, okay. So I spent after after I left art school, I spent maybe 10 years just sort of deriving art from just sort of Euclidean geometry. So I, I derived this kind of like this, I call it geometric meter, but it is kind of like a system of geometry where it would determine where everything was on the canvas, you know, or nothing was kind of arbitrary, it all fitted in this geometric system. 
And it was a way for me to kind of like take the kind of like boundless world of shapes and forms and give it structure, kind of like the way I was thinking about it was kind of like classical music. So, you know, it, it created these, uh, this meter tempo and things like, things like this to give it some structure. And then I started to make websites to show this work in, uh, I guess, in my 30s. And then through that, I, I kind of learned the rudimentaries of coding and I, I took on a couple of projects. I got into patent, surface pattern design, and I made some tools for, for designers to kind of showcase these patterns and, and also enable artists to go in and, and edit the patterns and change the colors and stuff. And through that project, I learned to code. You know, that, that's pretty much when I started making generative art, although at the time I didn't really know, I wouldn't have called it generative art. I didn't really know any other people making anything like that. When was that, Harvey? It would have been like, I think 12 years ago. I've been saying 10, but I realized the other day it was 12. So there were generative arts around, you know, creative codes, but I, I wasn't really aware of them. I'd seen this guy called Jared Bell. I think he was my first exposure to what we you know, we now call generative art. But, and and, and uh, nowadays, do you do 100% generative or are you still doing different mediums? I'm really excited by long form generative art right now. So that's, that's where I see is the kind of like the big revolution in art, you know, of course I'm biased, but and that's where I see, that's, that's where I see the potential to really make new forms in art, find new uh, like language, visual language. So that's where I'm focusing all my attention because you don't get these moments come along in, in art very often. So, uh, you know, I want to be there for it and I want to, you know, contribute what I can. Yeah, and and actually, uh, sorry, Jared. I know you. Were, I, I just had to squeeze in one more question because I read your article, Harvey. On uh, I'm I'm not going to get the title wrong, so I pulled it up. Why long form generative art could evolve into the most significant artistic movement in the last fifty years. So we'll we'll put that in the show notes. I'd love for you. Well, first of all, I want to say you call it LFG art, which I think is amazing, and I think we should call it that because that LFG is also sometimes a let's f and go. Right. Um, so I think that's a, a perfect one there, uh, a perfect thing to call it. And uh, you you point out that this is kind of a a moment in history that you feel is important. Could you like, elaborate on that? Because I think it'd be awesome for people to hear your thoughts on it. Sure. Well, you know, I, you know, I had my other foot in traditional art, and I've been pretty immersed in twentieth century art for for a long time. Uh, you know, I've been pay, I I pay attention to to what I, you know, let's call traditional art. And to me, like, the exciting period, the most exciting period in the last century was, you know, like 1910, 1920, where, where in the essay I say the space of conceivable art explodes, right, where you, you know. And ever since then, I feel that rate of progress has been kind of slowing down. And I would say in the last 20 years, and certainly when I went to art school, there was this sense as a painter, oh, you know, well, there's nothing to, there's nothing more to do in paint. The, the medium's kind of exhausted. And there's kind of like, I would say kind of, you know, the substitute for like visual invention over the last 30 years has been kind of like shock and, and conceptual narrative. It's kind of like a surrogate for something that's really exciting, uh, new visual language. 
But until the medium, until you get a really new medium and a way of kind of like thinking about art, it's almost impossible to kind of like come up with new visual, visual stories, visual language. So now because, you know, long-form generative art, because like I say in the essay, it's made of these components, it's made of the internet, it's made of JavaScript, it's made of Web2, you know, uh, communities, and it's made obviously Web3 marketplaces. It's just an opportunity to make things so radically different compared to what's, you know, maybe in the last 30, 40 years. It's not tired, you know, it's sort of an excitement about the space. And I think a lot of the art is very celebratory. It's not like, it doesn't seem tired. Like maybe, you know, if you went into the Tate Modern the last 20 years, you'll see a lot of kind of fairly negative kind of expressions of angst. <laughs> I love and, that you're, you have so much exposure on a, on a timeline to, to the art, traditional art and generative art, we'll call it art in general, that you can have that perspective. I, I think it makes you somewhat unique in the field. And, and I can sense your enthusiasm about the opportunity that's in front of all of us. And I, I don't know about you, but when we were in Marfa, I felt that. I just felt like the enthusiasm, not only from collectors and people like myself who had like financial investment in the, in the space, but also the artists. It's just the amount of collaboration and enthusiasm is, is off the chart. So it's cool that, you know, from your perspective, you've shared that, you know, there's, there's this moment and, and we're on this precipice of, of something amazing. Since you do recognize this moment. I was curious, how much time do you think you put into Fontana specifically? And then my next question, because I love to quantify stuff, is how many outputs do you think you previewed before the launch on Artblocks? Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So Fontana actually, so I, I dropped Photon's Dream in June. And then it took me about a month to tie everything up after that. I committed prints and and I kind of really felt like I had to hustle with that project to get it sold out. <laughs> and then and then I started work on Fontana about a month after Photon Stream, which would have took me into July. I had that I had Fontana finished within six weeks. Not start to begin. That's including having it on art block. So I but it was one of those, you know, sometimes you work on projects and and they do just, they, they kind of just unfold in a very natural way. You're not forcing anything. It's just almost, I wouldn't say it's effortless, but it's kind of like, it just feels right. And it, it, that project's always, it seems like a lucky project. You know, it seems like everything <laughs> related to that project seems to happen well, you know. I, I don't know, maybe it's just aligned with the stars really well. I, I don't know, but it just happens. sounds like you hit a flow state, and it, I mean, it definitely shows in the the outputs, man. It, it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, I think you know it might be difficult for me to replicate, even because it, I think after Photon Stream, that the what Photon Stream was, it was the kind of culmination of like ten years of work I'd done on these really esoteric sort of geometric kind of ideas, which weren't necessarily. I didn't explore them to make art initially. It was just some of those visual, those those geometry visualizers turned into Photon's Dream. Now, once I dropped Photon's Dream, I took I stopped and I really had a look at what had been. I looked at the whole long form generative art space and I looked at what had been successful, 
what I liked, obviously, but I kind of, I, I just sort of dismantled the whole thing. And I thought, and I kind of thought, well, I'll design a project around what, what the collectors like, what's been successful. It sounds contrived, but this is, I, I, I don't just, think it's contrived at all. I think you're taking into to account not only your, your audience, but I think, I mean, your, your mathematical expression, you know, the passion that you spoke of and the, the thirst for knowledge that you spoke of earlier, it shows in, in the outputs. And I, I don't think that there's anything misaligned with being able to, to balance those two. I think, if anything, it's absolutely a, a brilliant amalgamation. I mean, you look at a Venn diagram, like that's right. the perfect overlap is when you produce something you're proud of that, that, that really digs into all of your past experiences and has that overlap with collectorship. I mean, it's, right. it's brilliant. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things I noticed was this thing called, I call trad realism, which like generative arts making art that looked like more traditional mediums. And initially when I saw that, I didn't like it. And I thought, well, this is a copy. This is just hanging on to the past. But the more I thought about it, I wrote an essay on it actually and convinced myself to give it a go because I actually thought, well, you know, you can be creative within any constraints. And the constraints I gave myself for Fontana were these, okay, I think I get, I get a sense for what's worked in the past on art blocks anyway, and I'm going to design a project, just one project specifically for, to, you know, within those constraints. And you can be, you know, and that's just the challenge of being an artist. You could set those constraints to be in any, anything really. Got it. And, and in this case, what you observed had seemed to do well were this uh, I guess traditional realism. Is that what you called it? Right. Yeah. I mean, like Emily Z's project memories, you know, and Cyclone, they all had these sort of beautiful kind of textures. And I think there was, you know, there was an ideal in me which said, mm, this is, this is, you know, what, why are we doing this? This is hanging on to the past. At the same time, I loved them. <laughs> you know, I just wrote an essay for Vellum actually talking about this and just, because I've been thinking about it some more, and I think actually what what it is is just the things that we've we've treasured and really enjoyed in art for thousands, you know, for hundreds of years. It just happened to be the same thing in generative art. So even if those traditional art me- mediums have never been created in the past, I think we'll still make textures and stuff that kind of look like you know paper and so forth. Because we could make paper in lots of different ways, right? We could make it smooth, we could make it angular, but we don't. We make it. We make it warm and homog- the, the texture is very kind of unifying and so forth. And that works. I think the texture makes it relatable too, right? right. Like I think as a, as a collector, you, you, you find this balance between generative art and, and the texture. And it, it just pulls you in and it gives you a sense of familiarity while still acknowledging that it has this new we'll call it genre of LFG. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Anyways, bad transition. How many? So I'm I'm really curious about this. How many outputs do you think you previewed in that time? Because I I'm really fascinated with this. We we were on a spaces with uh, MJ Lindau, and he said it for his recent drop, he went through three hundred thousand outputs, which was like oh, mind blowing to me. I wouldn't say that many, but it's I don't see I don't until I get onto testnet. I don't make hundreds at a time. I make one at a time just because I like to spend maybe you know, 10 seconds or so just looking at them, even if I don't like them. I want to I understand what I don't like about them. So I, Fontana is quick to generate, only takes half a second or so. So I would say maybe during the course of the day, it might be several, maybe several hundred, and then that times six weeks. So 
Yeah, it would be a good few thousand, tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands. Yeah, no, it just I I use it as a data point. I don't think it's either positive nor negative. I just think it's interesting. But the point you made it actually has a deep resonance with me as you. You spent time reflecting on maybe the ones you didn't like as much. I think that's important to fine tune the craft. So I admire what you're doing. Yeah. So I I wanted to talk to you about the traditional realism thing, because it's something that I've thought about as well. You hit on a point about the nostalgia that collectors might feel when it reminds them of something physical and analog. But I also wanted to ask you, now that you've gone through that with Fontana, is there? Do you also find there to be a technical challenge in trying to take our really precise honed computer systems and have them output something that has a lot more random error in it, like we see in nature, or at least systemic error, but certainly the random errors? Well, obviously, there is, I mean, there is a technical challenge to get something that does look very warm and, and organic. I personally really enjoy that challenge. So, you know, that's. I think it's just part of making... You know, beautiful services and, and textures is that you have this very dense type of variety within the marks you make. So, I mean, even without even thinking about trad realism, every element I put into work, into a piece of work, I try to find as much variety within, you know, I try to find a way to kind of like expand this, the space of that particular element as much as possible. So, you kind of naturally end up with with very sort of rich textures and things that kind of look organic, even if I'm not deliberately trying to do that. So I don't know if that answers the question. No, definitely, definitely. And I think it's, you know, I, I guess it's uh, maybe a broader question about how you feel now after Fontana about making art in that in that way. Um, are you excited about that? Do you think you'll you'll switch gears going forward to something different? Okay, so yeah, I, I, I'm going to continue to work in the area. There is, I do have two distinct kind of like main sort of threads I'm very interested in my work. And one is a kind of like the derivative of um, Photon's Dream, which is the, the way I make the art is with these wave functions and you get a very different type of output. Fontana, Vellum, they're all made in a very similar way using SVG. And then I have this layer over the top, which produces sort of like this additional layer of texture. Um, but I still want to continue to explore that road because there's still so much to do there. I do want to make art that kind of does have that kind of warm kind of feel. I love, you know, like the house I I spent years renovating houses before this and the house I live in, not this one, but another one, I use reclaimed materials all over the place and it's got these kind of really warm, old kind of look, you know, concrete kind of tops. And... Is that the one that you posted on uh, on Twitter recently? Yes, right. So, and there's something very comforting about that. And if, if I think about the art I want to make, I want to make art that looks good in a house like that. So, and people seem to like it, right? So why not? I'm not going to throw it. <laughs> I mean, we we love it. You know, I'm crazy about about uh, all of your art. I'm really excited about Vellum. So I'm glad that you are continuing on with those techniques. And uh, yeah, may, maybe we can dive a little bit into Fontana here. And, uh, you know, my first question for you about it is, how would you describe the techniques that you used to make Fontana? Is Is SVG the the best way to describe it, or I know you've talked about wave functions, 
maybe that's a parallel or sorry, a, a tangential categorization. But yeah, how would you describe it? Well, SVG is just a scalable vector graph. It's, it's just a language, really. It's just a markup language. I, I, I've been involved with SVG right from the when it first came about, um, back when a lot of browsers didn't support it. And I, I absolutely love it. But it's you have the way you create, the way I create like my projects is I, I so I don't use any libraries. But I have built because I've been using SVG a long time. A certain sort of I'm so familiar with it that you you kind of you construct these kind of like forms in quite a meticulous way. You have to sort of like it's quite slow going, but it to me it's just what's natural. So I don't technically I don't really have to think about the you know coding it so much. It's more the 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 day to day struggle is just the same as like making a painting. It's just like trying to create more variety within the forms, balance things like this. Is the I, I I try to you know um, stick technically with the same sort of method at least for you know I think I'll stick with it for a few years because you can waste a lot of time as an artist just sort of learn a new code, new devices, and so forth, and not actually make art. If that makes any sense. I'd say my meth, my, my maybe what this not distinguishes me, but I'm more in the camp. I kind of feel like I'm very much, I'm very mechanical. So you know, I've always fixed my own cars. I've always built things. I've built houses and so forth. And I'm thinking my process is very kind of mechanical. I have a sort of very sort of clear idea of geometrically what I want on on the canvas, and then I sort of build things kind of like little. It feels like. I'm a mechanic or I'm building little code machines to, to ex, you know, to make these certain sort of structures. And I also think about things very compositionally because of my background in traditional art and so forth. And I'm really looking at things uh, sort of like structure in a compositional way. Um, I would say actually just that kind of relates to the last question, actually. I, before, you know, I did actually make art that first 20 years and, and the first 15 years without making it using any texture whatsoever and very little color so in a sense I feel like I've been through this period where I've explored this pure composition for a long time and now I haven't felt like I'm comfortable and I know what I like and what I want to explore I can now you know with generative art I can explore the, the texture and the color and so forth in in, in new interesting ways but I don't think I'm ever going to go back to just uh, to that really sort of minimal type. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you get to keep keep building upon what you're doing and, and continue to evolve. That's fantastic. I, it's always amazing, and I I don't mean this to sound pedantic, but it's like how deeply the artists have thought about these things, and in such a profound way that it, yeah, it's it's beautiful to hear. So I I appreciate you sharing that with us. You know, one of the things that put Fontana on our radar way back when was your use of generative color. And uh, I was curious if you could explain to the to the listeners sort of how you went about that and uh, what your intention was with that. Well, I was just I mentioned a little while ago a project I built for for pattern for designers to to explore these pattern libraries. It was called. Uh, pattern cooler it's still a project that's online actually anybody it's just getting a bit old but in that out in that product i built i built this color generator 
which was the first generative color algorithm I ever built. And actually that code is related to the Fontana algorithm. There was a certain process I developed back then that evolved into the, the Fontana algorithm. It was just a way of kind of like finding very sort of like harmonious color groups back on the old project. And then with Fontana, you know, it did really, you know, that, that was probably the biggest challenge of the project. There's something that I had always wanted to do. I tried to do it with Photon's Dream, but then I kind of, I kind of got scared at the end and it was still producing too many kind of outputs I didn't like. So I kind of found this hybrid approach with that project. But with the Fontana color algorithm, at the core, at the heart of that algorithm is this kind of way of making the spectrum um, what I call tonally balanced. So if you take the color spectrum and you make it black and white, right, on Photoshop, you'll see that the yellow is very bright and the, the blues are very dark. So, so a, a tone, tonally balanced spectrum is where you, and, and this is using my definition, when you make it black and white, it's just one mid-gray, right? So, you, so your yellows have been made a little bit darker, for instance, and the blues have been made lighter. And, and there's, a, there's a simple way to do that. There's some complex ways to do it, which, but I've, I found like, I don't know, about 10 years ago, a very simple way to do it in code. And that that spectrum then forms the basis of the algorithm. And then from there, this is an, an analogy I've used is kind of like if you think of it as a three-dimensional space, the color is so you've got most most color models are three-dimensional. So you may have got light and dark, and then you've got the hues around like a cylinder. Now the process of developing the algorithm is very much like being a sculptor. Then you're sculpting out big chunks of that of that three dimensional color space until you're left with just the bits that you want, and then you have to do some sort of clever things to kind of like pick colors within that space. And I think one of the things I discovered with Fontana was just how much material you can move from that color space. You can you can cut big chunks of it away. Like there's this thing in my essay I called the green and the purple killer. Where I'm just chunking, just kind of huge chunks of the green and purple spectrum, right? And you can, you can still create a lot of diversity, even in a very sort of, you know, limited space. And this is something, you know, this is one of the things I learned also at art school. We would be set for paint a picture with, say, three, we'd pick three colors. And the magic thing about color, you know, it's not the much, it's not, not the range you have, but how you contrast the two sort of like two who's together and so forth that make them dance. So, you know, there are many artists throughout history, you know, Rembrandt only used a handful of colored pigments throughout his whole career, you know, and yet you look at a Rembrandt and they're just totally alive uh, with the, you know, the color. So, so that's just sort of a general view of, of the color algorithm. That's a actually brilliant visual for the the cylinder and the three D chunking. <laughs> Before we de- dive into the project, I, I really wanted to check in with you and see, you know, the project's fairly new. You know, a little over two months old. But how, how are you doing with like the almost meteoric rise from a financial quantification of things uh, throughout the process? Did you say a financial perspective? I, I think he means how are you doing with the emotions that come with such a high price rise of, of your work? Oh, I see. Right. 
Um, fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying it. I mean, it's not it's not stressful at all. I mean, I've you know, I've been making art under a rock for 25 years, waiting for one person to give me some attention, and now I've got you know buckets of it. It's it does seem like every day I wake up, I think, God, you guys are still talking about this project. <laughs> It's it, like it feels a little surreal, I must admit, you know, that that has had so much attention. Um, and I'm very grateful for it, you know, I, but I enjoy it. And I try to engage the community where, whenever I can. You know, if I'm not too busy, I, I try to spend time every day talking to collectors and so forth. And, and if people just, you know, want to talk to me about the project, I'm always trying to make time for that. But it's certainly not, I don't find it, it's not been a stressor at all. Maybe it'll be a stressor when when the project's been forgotten. <laughs> I, I have a sneaking suspicion that that day is not necessarily going to be either anytime soon or for a long time. Uh, it's it's very well deserved, and everybody that we've engaged with um, is very complimentary to the project. If anything, they've uh, referred to it almost as uh, you know something that's different it has a different look and feel about it so much so that the the amount of excitement even pre-release was 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 evident to those who were willing to listen so i i say that about the how are you feeling because i gotta imagine the the feeling could be surreal at times like you say for 20 years under the rock to all of a sudden thrust into the limelight of of lfg right Exactly, yeah. It, that's exactly how it feels. Every time there's a like a run, I, it's just um, yeah. Because I mean, Photon's dream kind of went under the radar more or less, you know. And I kind of expected more of the same, you know. But of of course, it got you know it got chosen for curated, so I knew it would be have a bit more attention on it. But um, but I mean, even from day one, it was just uh, the the block top pie during the minting was just. Uh, not what I was expecting at all. Um, but it's been, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what well, to say, really. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's fantastic. They're calling it Fontenza. Fontenza. <laughs> so it, it, it could be the next one. People have been waiting. Uh, cool. Well, with that, let's, let's, let's jump in. Let's not keep the, the people waiting anymore. Uh, so we are now going fully on to video here. Um, so we have uh, our DECA gallery here that we put together for this episode, Harvey. And uh, just super quickly, Fontana released on October 5th, 2022. So as Jared mentioned, just a little over two months ago, there's 500 pieces and it was on Artblocks curated. And uh, here we have uh, Harvey's description of it. And as a disclaimer, uh, we, we do not own Fontana at the moment, sadly, painfully, but soon. So let's, uh, yeah, let, let, let's go ahead and, and break it down. So, you know, normally, Harvey, we talk about why we picked this collection, but and uh, our, our framework uh, is essentially we look at the aesthetics of a collection, the breadth, the outputs, which we think is important for LFG art. I'm just going to keep saying that now, uh, long form generative art. Uh, and then we take a look at the artists themselves and say, okay, are they uh, charismatic? Do they connect with their collectors? Are they, you know, essentially uh, uh, somewhat willing to promote their art? Uh, and you are fantastic at that too. The best holders have Fontana. The sentiment is, I mean, Fontenza. What, what more do I have to say? 
uh, that there's a clearly great sentiment around it. And then we we talk about historic significance because uh, not that this is something every collection needs, but having a the provenance of being the first to do something is uh, often uh, something that people look to for collecting artwork. And with Fontana, I think this generative color concept that you employed is super interesting and I think one that we will probably continue to see people emulating if if they haven't already uh, and uh, perhaps perhaps others as well. But I, I know I went through that quickly, but I wanted to just sort of talk about why we're so excited about Fontana, not just purely fanboying here. I mean, we, we love you and your work, but just the, there's some some analysis behind that. Jared, anything you want to add to, to that before we dive into the pieces? You touched on it earlier about the, the you know, there's no, you know, in the metadata defined palette, just the, the, the generative and algorithmic approach to, to the color paletting, I think was something like new, at least from my perspective. So I, I think that technically that's something that's very intriguing to me. Uh, I always felt that there was, you know, this very earthy feeling about the outputs and hearing Harvey's description of, you know, some of the inspiration behind it, it becomes even more evident. So it has this very soft, but like, and calming feel about it. And it's always been something that, uh, that drew me in. And, and then, you know, I mean, some of the collectors, at least, you know, on, in the proof discord are really loving the, the blues. So even getting a deeper insight and I'm processing somewhat in the moment here, about your your color theory, it, seeing that and how everything is complementary to one another, it, it's just very, very evident to me. Not only the outputs were well thought out, but they were crafted in a very deliberate fashion, and it shows. Well, awesome. Let's uh, let's hop in. So, Harvey, you can see the screen, correct? Yep. Okay, perfect. So, the first category in the metadata is called composition. And for composition, there are four types. There are adjacent, which is the majority at 162, single, free, and then cascade. Cascade being the most rare with 48. And here on the screen, we have number 11 and number 40. And I'll scroll down super fast. Uh, number 54 on the left and 252 on the right. So th these are all an adjacent composition. And uh, yeah, Harvey, I was wondering if you could talk us through what what does the composition govern and what does an adjacent composition uh, result in? Okay, so with adjacent compositions, you have, I'm going to call them geometries, sort of like main, if you if you look on the one on the left, you see sort of like, I call it a source, where, 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 all, the, where all the elements will emanate from. So bottom left corner, there's, there's a, yeah, so around, yeah, where you've got your cursor there, I call that a source. So in that composition, you've got two sources. You've got one on the top right, yeah, one that's slightly more obscured. So, so there's two main geometries there, and when they're adjacent, they share. If you if you look, as they move towards the middle of the composition, you'll see that the sort of like the the, the radius of the kind of like collections of, I call them sprays gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So you end up with a kind of, a, a, a in this one, a diagonal kind of line from the top left-hand corner to the bottom left-hand corner. That's where the two geometries kind of like interface. They're adjacent to each other. They, they, they're kind of, maybe there's, there might be a, so the one on the right, 
the, 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 the output on the right, it's kind of slightly harder to see just because there's so many bow ties. But you'll see in all the adjacents, you'll see like there'll be a sort of like a horizon line between the two, two geometries. If you, I wish I had control of the mouse. Yeah. So yeah, where you're now running the where, where you're now running the um, the cursor. So that would that's where I call it like the horizon, and that's where the two geometries kind of interface. I see. So is it is it fair to say that the composition is where the geometries interface and in in these cases they're adjacent to each other well that's kind of like one of the constraints that kind of makes adjacent compositions the way they are because they share the same sort of boundary this same sort of horizon between the geometries got it so they're kind of like facing each other or they're adjacent to each other that's where yeah yeah and i pulled out two down here that are a little bit more simple to see if this could help demonstrate it as well so it's much harder to see in the left one because there's so little left of one of the geometries. <laughs> so one of the things with Fontana is if, if one the elements in the geometries, I call them sprays, if they cross over the canvas boundary, they get replaced with a very sort of transparent version of itself. In, and so they effectively kind of get removed so with this particular output there's hardly anything remaining of one of the geometries you can in the in the right side you can see you can see that you can see the, the the horizon between the two yeah so where you've got your cursor now yeah right here this horizon coming through okay excellent and you know harvey if these examples are not great we can always hop on to uh open C and, and see another one here. I will admit I was a little bit stumped with this one. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try to get some demonstrative ones here, but why don't, why don't we hop down to composition single? Maybe you can talk us through these. So this is, there's only one source. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. And it's usually more or less in the middle. So actually the, the origin of this, the single, see the photon stream, I had singles, which were very popular. Again, they were still fairly symmetric fairly singular <laughs> and this is this is a, a theme or a current theme maybe i'll use again in the future and other projects with this, the singles so you can see on the right hand side this one probably has a fairly high overpainting trait i imagine yeah let's take a see one let's take a look once we can get this uh metadata to load oh they updated their website here but it looks like this was oh here we go properties yep uh four for overpainting right. so yeah so the so emanating out from the source the the elements the actual fontana elements i call sprays not just because that references uh fountains i've always called them sprays i've always worked with this geometry actually for many many years and they they, they kind of spray out from the middle so but you'll see as the with this one, a lot of them would have crossed the edge of the canvas, and so they would have been replaced with the back with like a translucent background color. And you can see, so if you look along the bottom, there's a lot of modulation in the. It's look, it's kind of like in the background color. You see a lot of modulation. down there. Yeah. Right there. If you zoom back, in, yeah, that's it. So if, just 
this sort of like along the bottom of the canvas, you'll see this sort of like the blue is lots of different variations of the blue. It changes, it kind of modulates the warmer blues, cooler blues, purpley blues. So every time a spray is replaced, it's replaced with a, a color that's similar to the background, but not quite. So you end up with this kind of rich modulation in the in the in the colors. And when there's a high overpainting, that means that those those replacement sprays are not quite as transparent. So, so you get more of this kind of modulation. You get these kind of like, it's kind of like a rainbow almost in the blue, almost like, you know, oil on the surface of the puddle, you know. Um, and that's part of the generative color, correct? That's part of how you, you created the generative color. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, in... You know, uh, the generative color doesn't actually produce a palette as such. It produces a different color for every single element. So, you know, there'll be in, a, in an output like this, there'll be, you know, who knows, 10,000 different color values. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay, awesome. Well, let's, um, that's amazing. I, I appreciate that. And I, I had a feeling that some of the other categories would be explained as we were going through these. And here's here's a couple more uh, singles here. And uh, yeah, Harvey, I mean, I know that we are highlighting the composition single, but we can cheat ahead a little bit based on, you know, what are the major, what's the major difference between the one on the left and the right here? So they both have that single source, but okay. I think probably a lot more overpainting on this one on the left. No, it's got a higher flow rate. So there's just a lot more flow potential, I think I call it. So it's all just a lot more complexity. Now, the one on the right, the pink one, so a sing, even singles, do they do actually have two geometries, but the geometry that's put down first on the canvas is very transparent, and often you don't see any of it. Sometimes, So you can see these kind of like little hashed areas in the bottom of the pink one. They're, they're remnants of the, the bottom layer. And then the top layer, there's hard, just hardly anything left of it because it's because of the way it's interacted with this, the edges of the canvas. It would be easy if I had like a stick and I could point out things, but <laughs> <laughs> no worry, no worry. Where's the laser pointer? Yeah, no worries. There, there is in theory a way to do this, but uh, we we won't experiment for the first time, uh, right, right, the second. Okay, so so then the composition free. So how does this one work? So the free composition, the geometries are just basically free to roam anywhere on the composition. So they could, like the one in the middle, uh, it just happens to be more or less central. So, but they can be, I mean, they're not totally free, but they, they're within a certain range of parameters. They can appear anywhere on the canvas and there can be two geometries, three, I think two or three from memory, not one. Yeah, and the, I like how they they're you know as they go across the 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 final output, they just kind of have this ability and almost permission to to freely like have some some collision or meetup points. I mean, it it really is one of the more fun I'll call it aspects of the algorithm, in my opinion. It it really creates some of these uh, generally erratic outputs that that are so playful in a in a polite way. Right, that's good to hear. And if I'm understanding you correctly, Harvey, so the composition could be free. So this one on the left here, which is number 24, where it's uh, it seems like there's no clear source. 
Whereas this one on the right, number 124, it, it happened to be that there seems to be somewhat of a central source, but that was just random. Right. So that, yeah, the one on the left, actually, the source is just off the edge of the canvas. It would be off to the left. I see. That's why you can't see this. But it, uh-huh. everything is kind of radiating from a point yeah, where your cursor was, yeah, off to the left. I see. I see. Got it. And so, so generally speaking, all the Fontanas, do they all have like a radial geometry to them? They do. They all have the same very simple sort of, they, they, yeah, they all sort of grow up the same geometric family. I've been using, I've been using the same sort of like geometric object for probably like 20 years and ex- exploring it in different ways, but it's, it's a very simple thing. And uh, like Fontana is actually, it's kind of an inversion. The, the the objects that made photons dream, if you invert them geometrically, you end up with the Fontana object. <laughs> so they're sort of like they're cousins, it, but they're expressed in very different ways. They're expressed with very different kind of equations, but um, they, they are related. And this, one of the nice things about this particular geometric object is that it's good for making geometric art because it contains at the horizon the, the if you imagine the, the the radius of the pieces are infinitely large so they're, they're it's effectively a straight line and at the source the, the radius is infinitely small so it contains this complete spectrum of elements and this is what I really like about it as a as form and like a primitive to making geometric art because it has this inbuilt kind of variety. No, that's that's fascinating, and I think it's amazing that you've also been uh, studying the same geometry for twenty years, uh, which is, I think, both speaks to the almost like unlimited curiosity and, and nature with which you could understand things. Uh, but that's super cool. I I don't. I'm trying to do 3D math in my head to think of photons dream and how it relates, but we'll um we'll we'll come back to that one because I want to make sure we get to. The next composition, which is Cascade, and uh, this one is the most scarce. And so I would I would love to hear, I, I think I know what Cascade is. It looks like these, uh, you know, the different geometries are overlapping here, but would love to hear your thoughts on that. And also why you chose to make this uh, less frequent than others. Right. So the only reason that it's less frequent is because the... Cascades didn't work as well where there was containment, where, you know, I referred to how the elements, if they cross the boundary, they get replaced. Now, with the Cascades, there were just too, it didn't work. The the outputs were just getting too wishy-washy. They were, in my opinion, they were just too blurred out. So I, that's why they don't appear very often because you, you felt like too many of them were taken away. I actually eliminate them if they, just the way the probability works in the algorithm, if there's a cascade and there's also overpainting, they get turned into something else. <laughs> it was just like a, overpainting and I thought, now I've got to get rid of these. And it just creates this, this rarity in the, cas- in the cascades. So, yeah, so there are three geometries. Um, in the back, the, the first one to be laid down, which often you can see the source, and the, the one on the right-hand side there, you can see the source 
the bottom right hand, the bottom left hand corner. Yep, and that's number three eighty seven, right down here, right. The first geometry, they're much more transparent, so the the colors are more washed out. The, actually, the color values are the same, but the, because they're transparent, they're you know they lose their strength. And then the other two geometries will be the sources will be off to the one side of the canvas or the other, so they. Like up here is one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So they kind of create this kind of like it almost looks like a waterfall in in my mind, kind of cascading set of sprays or moving. Yeah, down. They start to like almost to your point of a waterfall, like where there's this sequence of terraces where they 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 I almost look at it as like a bully. They they kind of find their way into this like prominent mm. aspect of the 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 output, but at the same time do it in a very terraced i.e. cascading effect i mean it's a it's a really dominant characteristic of the output i like it i also think that it was scaled my personal opinion appropriately at roughly 10 percent because it, it is a very dominant force right yeah and the, the these the outputs which are i mean we're going to get onto this but the the containment which aren't contained that they are much more sort of forceful because there's not that softening that happens around the edge of the canvas. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't why don't we go ahead and hop over to containment that was next? And uh, just looking at containment, just some quick numbers. So the most common is none with 171, followed by hermetic with 153, and then horizontal is 90, vertical is 86. And uh where would you like to start, Harvey? We could start with Hermetic up here on the screen, but we can hop over to none. I think you might have mentioned. Well, no, let's start with Hermetic. This is a good example. The one on the right is a is a so if, this is a good example. So if you follow the sprays out towards the edge of the canvas, you'll find that they they kind of all stop short of the edge. Some of them look like they maybe just kiss it, but they don't. So I think this is one of the key parts of the kind of Fontana. I, this is the thing I'm most pleased with. And, you know, when I'm making art compositions, I don't want to make a piece of art that looks like it's just been cropped. I, I, I love art that looks like, you know, the, the edges of the canvas are there for a very good reason. <laughs> that, you know, that the, and this is something, you know, like I, I'm a big fan of Paul Cezanne and Rembrandt, and this is something that they're masters of. The, it's like, the edge is such an important part of the whole composition and there's a certain sort of softness in it. Like the, the picture just fills the canvas perfectly and you wouldn't want the edge to be anywhere else. I guess it's another way of sort of like saying it. So, so with containment, there's this thing of like just stopping short. The, if the spray goes past the edge, it gets replaced and then you you end up with this sense that the geometry just somehow fits more into the into the you know, into the you know the canvas. It just sort of it doesn't look like somebody's just got an exacto knife and cut a piece out. If you know what I mean? <laughs> so right. Although there isn't, there's something nice about that as well. So that's why I had both. So contain, hermetic containment is where that effect happens all the way around all the edges. So it's like it's like the activity got properly framed in the piece. And you didn't miss it. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Yeah. And Harvey, I gotta I gotta ask you because I've been noting noticing this throughout these various pieces. This is not something I don't think is in the metadata, but 
looking at this one over here, for people listening, Fontana 294, if you look at the bottom right of it, how do you, with the generative color, end up with a, a string here where you have, you know, mostly kind of shades of blue, let's call it, um, in this uh, radius or this radial section coming off the source, but then you have some pinks and some yellows and some browns, and, and really that pink is striking. It, is that just part of the randomness in the generative color? Well, this is this is a really good example of actually how how the the replacement works because you, it's all that blue because all the other sprays and the, the sprays live together in a kind of like a big arc. Uh, you can see it, if you go just above it, you see the black and white kind of set set of kind of like piano keys, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I call this a set. So there would have been a set beneath it, right? But most of the set went past the edge of the, the canvas, so they got replaced by blue, which is the background color. But the only the only pieces that didn't get replaced were the ones that just fitted in the corner, where you've got the pink and the and the yellows and the brown. So they're just the last few which didn't pass the boundary, and so the, their color gets preserved. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Similarly, with this color here, it didn't go past the boundary, so it stayed that color. But had it extended, it would have turned into a blue. Well, those ones, that set is probably, they're probably all preserved. Now, any set, any one sort of like key on the piano, let's say, in the set, could become an accent color. In this case, the accent's going to, because the background's blue, the accents are either going to be white or they're going to be something similar to a complementary. In this case, it happens to be pink. There's a little bit of kind of like, this is probably the most complex part of the whole color algorithm is picking the, the accent colors. So any one of the keys in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an arc, in a collection of sprays can, can be an accent. It can either be, yeah, it can either be, whatever that accent is for that particular output, which is pink <laughs> in this case, or white. Oh man, this is, this is so cool. You, you got to teach some advanced color theory classes at some point, Harvey. This is awesome. The accents are that I, I see the accents as seasoning. Uh, like if, if you like cooking, right, you can make a dish and it doesn't have salt in it. It's not good, but you don't, you, you also don't want to just eat a mouthful of salt. So accents you need to be used very sparingly, but you need to have them. Otherwise, it's just they they bring the you know bring everything else alive. You know, if you took if you take that pink out, for instance, you put your finger over the top of it, the whole colors for that piece just kind of fall asleep somewhat. But the pink just gives it some life. I I, I like the the analogy to to seasoning. Uh, there are also some that you know in the outputs that don't have the accent. So I think for you know, to your point about uh, people who may oversalt something or undersalt it, or right. some like <laughs> to have no salt at all, man. It, it, this is, it, it is, but when it hits, you know, whether it's pink, blue, or whatever, you know, these these little accents definitely make the piece uh, radiate in a different fashion. Right. Yeah. There's always a possibility that the accents won't show just because of the way things are calculated. You know on a rare occasion you'll have none but um yeah fantastic maybe so, that's the secret therapy so the the rarer ones are the ones with no accent 
It might be. It might be. <laughs> That's right. R- rarity is a tricky thing in generative art. Um, well, spe- well, speaking of rare, uh, the vertical and the horizontal containments are uh, slightly more rare for this category. And uh, yeah, so Harvey, I I think it's it's safe to say that the when you when you have a well, actually, maybe you can describe here. We have the vertical containment. So the one on the left, the one with the blue background, oh, they're both with blue backgrounds, but the one on the left, you'll see that if, if you sort of, you know, if you follow the ed- the left edge down and the right edge down, there's, n- there's nothing that crosses those boundaries in general. There's, there's a few, there's a bow tie that just kisses the, the edge, but there's nothing that kind of like cuts right across it. Now, if you look at the top and the bottom, you'll see all the elements that they, they do cross the top and the bottom. So the containment, the overpainting, has only been applied in this case to the to the sides, and that's why it's vertical. I see. So you get it through the overpainting. Brilliant. And then uh, down here we have a few with no containment, as and as as you can see, they're kind of all over the place. Yeah. So they're more of a, just like a general crop. They're just like somebody, almost like they've been cut out with an exacto knife. And that that way that creates a much more kind of like dynamic. I think Jared picked up on that. That's a lot more kind of like forceful because of that dynamic. Right, right. I have to say, I have a I have a better appreciation for the name of the hermetic. It's like hermetically sealed in the exactly. sense that like nothing touches the edges. It's, it's it's perfect. Yeah, it is. Oh man, and the the way that these radiators so beautiful. Oh, amazing! Thank you for explaining that, Harvey. Uh, I actually feel like I have a much better sense of it than than I did before, hundred percent. And let's let's move on to uh, flow potential. So I, uh, not quite knowing, but hopefully it was useful. Demonstrated flow potential in a series of of six fontanas here that have no containment, and flow potential goes from one all the way to six, one being the fewest six being the most, and six is actually really rare. There are only three with six flow potential. There are 13 with five, um, and actually the most are at with one at 245. So um, it kind of increases. Yeah, I would love for you to, to, I know you already touched on it, but maybe a, a quick recap and hopefully some of these images can help demonstrate. Yeah, so I call it flow potential because I still, I don't, you know, it could have a flow potential of two and it still could produce quite a complex output. And that's because the way, the way I built Fontana in terms of like how the, the randomness is woven into the algorithm is very different to how I made Photon Stream. So Photon Stream, you have like two algorithms, like one part of the algorithm, which just handles all the randomness and then that just passes that to another algorithm that builds everything. So with Fontana, the, the actual, the, the, all the little random choices happen all the way through the algorithm, kind of like a tree. So at any point, even in the tips of the branches, do you, you can have these possible choices being made by the algorithm. So if you change one thing in the Fontana algorithm right at the start of the algorithm, everything gets changed. Well, if you change anything, any or a, branch, a whole branch will get changed. So there's more of a kind of like this quality where everything is more unknown, if, you know, even to me. So I don't, 
although I I roughly know how complex things are going to be, I, I can't predict it exactly. You could still get this extra kind of unexpected randomness appear. So that's why I call it potential because, you know, some of the twos and threes and, you know, are quite complex and some of the twos are quite simple. <laughs> it's more of a ballpark. Got it. Got it. So it's the ability for them. So would you say that these ones we're seeing on the screen here are uh, on the more or the less complex side? Basically, you've got a more or less, you know, they're good representatives of the whole, the numbers. So ones obviously have this potential to be super simple. The distribution, like the fact that there's not many sixes, the way I think about traits and features, I actually want the type of output that best represents the algorithm as a whole, I want that to make up, like, fill most of the bell curve. And the more extreme outputs, I want them to be on the, on the edges of the bell curve because they're, because they're more dangerous. <laughs> it, you, you, I, this is how I think about it anyway. In, in those more extreme outputs, you've got, you've got the potential for the real treasures to appear, but you've also got potential for a complete train wreck. If I ever learned to code, I, I would approach it the exact same way. You kind of let the chaos sneak its way in and have that potential, but not let it dominate. I mean, right. since we made the reference earlier, I mean, there's a couple palettes in Fidenza that are just absolutely brilliant. But, you know, I think that they've been throttled in such a way that the outputs aren't overwhelming, right? And and I, I see that here, specifically with your flow potential six, like it's beautiful, but I don't know if a, a full 500 of these would have necessarily hit as as appropriately. So I, I love the the throttling of that. And I mean, that's probably the perfect transition into the final category, which we have, which is overpainting. P, I'm sure you have the statistics as how many show up in each one, but I'm going to take a stab at this. But I think it's pretty self-explanatory where you can range from zero to five, zero, meaning there's no overpainting and you get these very vibrant colors that haven't been, um, I'll call it interrupted and pop. Then mm-hmm. overspray all the way up to five is, I don't want to, again, I apologize for the untechnical term, but it appears to have a little bit more of a, a haze, but the, in a color of that dominant background kind of covering the majority of the piece. How did I do? Good. No, that's that's it. So generally, the more overpainting, the when when there is containment, the more sort of opaque the elements. The the elements are that. Oh, this is difficult to explain, but um, you're going to see basically you're going to see more background color and more sort of background color haze with with a higher overpainting number. Yeah, and I think you see it here almost with a lot you, of these. That one, you know, you do see it, but it's not as obvious as some of the other ones. You get this kind of like maybe the one that yeah, the overpainting four, you can see it at the top. There's a lot of kind of blue. Some some of them you get this kind of real sort of haze, which where it looks like it's been washed. Like in painting, you can make a wash, which is where the paint's really thin. And like lots of layers of wash can kind of create this. Kind Almost of like that sponge overwash that, right. that hasn't been washed off. I mean, personally, I'm a big fan of the the zero overpainting. I think that you know the accent colors that we talked about earlier really, really get their dominant pop off of the the output, and and it really has this 
dominant presence about itself. Uh, I understand that there's reasoning for all of it, and I appreciate the the washing effect. Just personally speaking, I, I love the the zero wash and, and right. these, these color accent pieces. I mean, the pinks and blues just, I mean, they they really have this emotional capturing effect on these pieces. Yeah, these 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 are brilliant. Yeah, and so so Harvey, we asked you as we do to listeners for um, pretty much every collection what top not top three but well okay we Jared and I pick a top three of the collection for ourselves but I don't like to ask artists that because I don't think it's a fair question so I asked you to highlight three pieces and he's here are the three that you wanted to highlight I'd love to talk through why you chose them okay yeah I and it was it was it's really hard to pick some but yeah I just figured these were fairly uh there were some interesting things going on here and and I just think they're very unique pieces in the set. So the one on the left, I, to me, this, this, I mean, just visually, it just stands out from many of the other pieces. I think it's, I think this piece is quite, I think it's, it's a good piece that kind of introduces people to the set of Fontana because it's, it kind of looks, to me, it almost looks like Native American. It looks like maybe something else, maybe not a classic Fontana. It's got this kind of like almost tapestry quality, but it's kind of like a gateway piece because it it bridges, it kind of looks like maybe some other things that I've seen before, you know. Yeah, you could see it hanging in like a Western-themed house and it, it would fit appropriately. Right, so it I has this that. kind of, yeah, this American kind of native maybe. My, my wife thinks it kind of looks like, yeah, the colors are kind of native, but this very sort of fabricy kind of thing. Going you on. need to buy this one. It goes with your uh, your horse merid- or memories. It, it would be the perfect pair. I would love to have it. Right? Yeah, I think it is. For, it is for sale as well. I tried to pick at least one which was for sale, although it's quite pricey right now. <laughs> <laughs> True. But, Sorry um, of my life. Yeah, it does. To me, it's it's a very unique piece in the set. It has this beautiful complexity. And even the 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 you know the high the 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 the, gener- the, the palette that's been generated, all the brands and the bases, I think that's very unique in the set. I guess the other thing that's quite unique about that piece, or very, is the fact that all the elements are a very similar size. There's not a big dynamic range in the in the actual size of each element. They're they're you know, um, and there's. There's a lot of bow ties going on in there, <laughs> which kind of creates, you know, this because of the fact that there's so many pieces the same, so many elements the same size, and there's so many of them, it creates sort of very homogenized kind of like feel. This is the way I see it anyway. This kind of like all over type expression, all over type pen. For the, I like on this piece in particular how towards the, the left side, of the output, the bow ties that you speak of, they almost seem to have this elongated feel as if it was being stretched or the the output was being kind of ripped or in the process of being ripped off screen. It, it's fun. They're going warp speed. That's what I think in my mind. Right. So that so this is a big design feature of the bow ties. So as there's usually there's either one, two, or three leg like rows or collect groups of, of the bow ties, which are an extension of the sprays. 
But when there's three, they actually get more alienated as they go, you know, the shortest bow ties is one, and then the next one will be a little bit more elongated, and then the next set will be even more stretched. And that's purely to create a sort of like a feeling of movement. Harvey, the only thing that I can comes to mind right now is all those bow ties are screaming LFG right now. <laughs> yes. I do want them to feel like, yeah, this is like spray from a, like, it's a lot of movement there. It's like looking at the base of a waterfall or something. There's a lot of kinetic energy. And the thing with bow tie, it's a very simple primitive. It's a very simple element. And that's usually the best way to create something that's sort of a sense of movement. If it's too complex, it just kind of, you know, just, it doesn't have the same sort of like kinetic impact. So I know it's fun. I, I'm jumping to your next one because I'm I'm a point out a cascade. I feel like this has a cascade character. This is a cascade. So brilliant. I think this is a, a very, very beautiful piece. Yeah, for me, I just love the way the colors got expressed in this one until it pops up. Yeah. So the background, the, it's, this is interesting. I think the actual background of this piece is the red you see in the middle of the source. So the, so the accents are the blues, which are quite unusual. They don't tend to come out like that. Just a lot of diversity in the, in, I mean, you've got that, you've got green accents in there, you've got yellows, but this all ties together in a really sort of harmonious, fun way. I think this is the first output I saw. I thought, oh, wow, I'm really happy with that one. That pink center almost it hits more of like a, a red skew than than that deep bright pink. Then I think that that hitting with the the more Tiffany blues is a an amazing combo. Right. Yeah. Tiffany. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. It's great cascade with no containment and uh, no overpainting. It really kind of optimizes for a lot of uh, diversity in this piece. But I even love like the little, like that big block of green that kind of like interrupts the the Tiffany right there. And the, yeah, I mean, like even that has like this very bold, but yet understated point uh, in, in the output. It's, it's, this one's really stunning. And then you've got that little band of sort of jade in there. So it's, it's surprising how many different, different hues are in this one, actually. Again, you know, it's, it's always possible. <laughs> and this one, I think this one's owned by, uh, curated down and they minted it I think they minted it well I know they did actually because they told me <laughs> so so what's the, one of the things so they pulled this up on the phone in Martha and asked me to talk about it and actually in the process of talking about it I was like wow yeah this is really unusual uh, in the sense that it looks like it's vertically contained if no this is a good example so if you look on the right side, how the sprays all stop, stop short of the, of the edge, it looks like that's some containment going on there, but it's not. It's just a coincidence. And I'm always really sort of like happy with the compositions, like I mentioned earlier, that look like they interact with the edge and the edge is sort of like adding something to it. And then you've got this sort of like, sort of like foil, this turquoise kind of teal foil in the bottom right-hand corner, where there's not a lot going on. I mean, there's some bow ties, which kind of contrast the sort of intensity of the sprays. Yeah, the sprays have a very prominent uh, position uh, in the radiance from this. It's a pretty dope one. And I did just confirm it's from one of Curated's hot wallets. They minted this thing. 
Yeah. Pretty, pretty awesome. This one you can really see, like some of these singles where you've got all these sort of clusters of sprays all in the same group, you can see how the color, if you start your right where your where your cursor was, uh, where the black and white sort of like thin lines are, and you've got that sort of like orange highlight. That's where the, the set starts, and it starts with black and white. This is fairly typical for Fontana. And as you move around the arc, they become less, they become more colored. But the, the hue will start to twist as you go around. So it starts off with green, and as it goes around, it becomes more and more yellow. And that's kind of like, that's one of the things, I haven't talked about it yet, but in the color algorithm, you have this, as you move through the color space, you modulate light and dark, but also you get twist. It twists through the hues. So if you, a green will eventually become more yellow, and then it'll become more orange and, and red. And each one of these sets of sprays has has that quality. It will it will it will start with white and black, and then it will go through the colors, but it will twist through the hues as it moves through. And I think that's quite apparent in this one. You can see how it goes from from green to yellow. It's not really yellow. As time it gets there, it's kind of so desaturated, it's beige. But it's a lot of um, variety in this one, a lot of sort of variety of texture. You've got the very linear black and white thin stripes. You've got the teal flat area. You know, you've got the deep pink lines. It's um, just a nice collection of different textures. And the colors pop in a, in a special way on this one. It, it's definitely a beautiful, beautiful piece. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for explaining that. I, I'm just continuing to be in awe at the both the simplicity and the complexity of this algorithm. Uh it's yeah, it's it's beautiful how they're coming out. But yeah, I, I I don't know what else to say. I'm just gonna shut up and let Jared talk about his his three that he picked. Yeah, I feel somewhat far inferior uh as a result of that, but I just joking. The the first one I have up here is number 42. It has that elongated bow tie characteristic as you kind of sweep from the, the center to the lower right. It just it feels like a very amazing prominence. But the thing I liked about this one in particular is this very prominent blue, almost divide amongst the piece. And it has this uh, incredible uh, overlay of two different, uh, con- oh, not concentric, but two different competing circular pieces and in the way that the colors overlap and, and have a a tendency to complement one another it was is I, I thought beautiful and then the other part of it that i was really drawn to is in that divide of the blue streak right down the the center and it literally goes from almost perfectly the lower left to the upper right there's these bow ties and in and in that lower left of it there's just this incredibly homogenous but yet somewhat like distinctly and harmonious uh group of bow ties that are that are all competing for not only space but uh color dominance and it just it felt unique to me amongst some of the pieces um that were that were in the collection and almost completely on the opposite end of that spectrum is number 111 and this is something that was fairly straightforward it's a single composition and with no overpainting, surprise, surprise, and a flow potential of one. And I think that that's what the flow potential of one, you don't see a lot of uh, white noise in here, but also the the composition being single, you have this really centered piece. And again, maybe I'm drawn to the greens, but it's got this 
one green ray that radiates out of it. But really what drew me into this piece is, you know, almost as if there was like a, an architect laying this piece out, there seems to be kind of these like circular nature, almost as if Harvey had sketched it out himself and been like, oh, oh, no, I didn't want this circle. And then you could see the almost as if like the the pencil lines of of the center circles on the center point. It just it felt like it was, like I said, a, a professional designer or architect had had taken the time to really dig into this piece in such a way that its simplicity is really overshadowing the complexity of like what's really going on behind the scenes. And last for me is number two thirty six. I said I didn't like overspray, but here's one that has some overspray. And this is owned by Thomas Lynn Peterson. So chances are none of us will ever get to see or have the opportunity to purchase this thing, given his uh, his diamond-handed nature of collecting amazing pieces. But th- this to me just popped. There seemed to be like this really concentric nature of things, but the the center circle has this just very... Like I could see this being a piece of jewelry, if that makes any sense. It has a very... Is a golden hue with a, the appropriate amount of accents uh, to it, but then like this, even the outer ring just has like such a playful nature, especially along the the top for those piano keys that you talk about the the black and white. It just it had this beautiful playfulness amongst that ring, and then at some point it just drops off and it it just allows itself to be itself. So. And, and then the dominant blue nature of this, it just, it felt something special. And then seeing that Thomas owned it, I, I felt like he, uh, he saw the same potential when this thing popped up. Fantastic. You guys, you guys are both going to put me to shame with your, your picks, but I'll, uh, I'll go ahead. And I actually went a little bit uh, emergent property heavy. So Harvey, if you've never heard us talk about it, uh, emergent property is just the idea that images appear in some of these random outputs that were not intended. So this one, if hopefully I don't have it wrong, but I believe this is the keyhole one, affectionately known as the keyhole Fontana. It is number 411. And it looks like it's probably a cascade. I have to actually check. Yeah, 441, cascade. correction. I'm sorry, 441. My apologies. Thank you, Jared. Uh, and so this is a cascade. Uh, does not have any containment, but it just has it almost looks like a large source. Uh, I don't, I don't think that's exactly what's going on. Or maybe it is. And then we just have really big keys uh, in the background there. And and I love blue as uh, Jared and the listeners will know. So yeah, I just really thought this was a cool one that emerged there. Yeah, actually, maybe I can ask you really fast, Harvey, is, is this just like a, a source here in the background that's kind of giving you this, this, Yes, you've got it. Yeah, it's just very, it's a very zoomed in one. So like you say, yeah, it's big. Awesome. I love that. And the second one that I picked, similarly, this is going to sound dumb, but this, this, I I kind of in my mind saw like a, like a, like a jug, almost like a water jug or something. And uh, where this is sort of the top, a flask, if you will. And I know that's like probably reading into it a lot. And I partially just like the blues, but I don't know. This one just looked unique, the way the shape came out and how the bottom half of it was was pretty clear without any of those keys. And uh, I'm not going to venture to guess what this is. Uh, hermetic and a five overpainting. Okay, so so that makes sense with a lot of the rays there. But it just 
drew me in. I didn't I didn't overthink it, guys. I didn't overthink this. Um, and, uh, this last one, I really enjoyed it because it reminded me almost of those uh, prism experiments you see in physics, speaking of physics, Harvey, where on the left, you have like your, your normal, like your standard light ray coming in and it scatters over to the right and you see the, the spectrum. It's not quite that, but it just gave me that feeling. And yeah, I thought it was beautiful. I, I liked the, the soft colors, like the tones there and the way they all fit together. So for the listeners, that's number 213 that I picked as my third. And this one, it looks like it's probably, um, oh, it's, it's actually a museum, man. Good choice. 6529 agreed. It turns out. So also won't we'll ever see this one, but <laughs> yeah, those, those are my three for the collection. And uh, where, you know, we're, we're kind of getting close to time here. Uh, Jared, what do you think? Should we should we use some fake money? Let's motor through some fake money, and then I have a a stinger question at the end for Harvey. Forewarning. Okay, let's think. We'll, we'll go to Sansa, the good folks on Sansa. So Harvey, hmm. we you may know, but we like to spend some fake money on whatever is available at the moment, at the current moment, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna start with fifty ether. And uh, you as the guest of honor, if you would like, don't feel pressured to, you can go first. Uh, don't feel pressured to it at all. But if you had 50 ether that you, you know, was airdropped to you somehow or in a wallet you found that you forgot about and you had to buy some Fontanas, which ones would you like? And oh, you don't have okay. to use my screen. I do, I do this on a regular basis. I see what's for sale and think, oh, okay, these are the ones. So actually, if you scroll up, it's one one of my favorites. This has been sitting on near floor for some uh, three seven nine. I, I I'm amazed it's still there. You know, people I don't I haven't heard anybody talk about it. It's quite an unusual output. Oh, sorry, I keep getting confused by the rank numbers. There we go. Oh yeah, okay. so rank three seven three. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a bargain right now. Twelve point seven five. But every day I think, well, it's, you know, if there's been some Fontana sales, I assume this one's gone, but it hasn't been. I'm, yeah, I'm really fond of that piece. It's a very unique piece in the, in, in, in the collection. Got some beautiful kind of like contrasts and textures. It's just very intense. I, I guess, it's, you know, I, I do have a bent for complexity, so it's not everybody likes that level of complexity. I don't know what the flow potential is. Maybe that's... It's very complex, but I imagine maybe it's only three or four. Yeah, it's three. Okay, that might be why people aren't. If it was a six, I'm sure it would have been snapped up. But It will be now, Harvey, don't worry. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a good, I, I see, you know, that, that would be a good, a good. Uh, okay, you got about point. 37 ether left. Keep going. There's some other, some other ones. So another one I think is, is this uh, four seven nine on the right? Yeah, I just saw that. Very yeah, wow. distinctive. Like those, the 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 um, bow ties in this one are very sort of like unusual. They're tiny. If you zoom in, there's there's a tiny set of bow ties right in the middle. Yeah, and they're very crisp. Um, there's another set there as well. I think that's a very distinctive piece. Um, and I like it a lot. I, I love the color variation. It's kind of like a, I call it the test card, which is kind of like, you know, 1980s television test cards, a lot of black and white in color. 
Yeah, that's that one's beautiful. Jared's taking notes for his fun. Yeah, I'm surprised surpri- that the, the the brown one there, the uh, number thirty six. That, that one, yeah, I mean, it's a simple one. Um, I think it's a very sort of elegant composition. I think it's a very successful composition containment on the left and right. Um, it's not. It's not like it's not an in your face piece. It's not, but it's just well composed and and humble. It's a bit like the one that I think Jared picked out in the in his collection in the, in the middle. Very humble. We'll, we'll we'll give you one more, Harvey. Okay. You only had five ether left, but artist discount. Yeah, I think they'll keep. Let's keep going. Yeah, out of, out of everybody selecting, he gets the royalties on the back end, so we can uh, you can you can top it off. <laughs> on the let me just see what's really in the higher end. Although we won't be able to afford them. I, there's this this one coming up. Uh, keep going. Uh, this one here, yeah. This Number one two ninety. Really like. Although it's twenty four ETH, so uh, that's okay. That's okay. We'll allow it. Yeah. So this is a good example of the overpayment and the containment. I think this is a hermetic one, but it really sort of fits well into the into the you know into the canvas. Subtle. It's not ostentatious like some of them. You know the colors are very subtle. Yeah, it feels extremely balanced. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really happy with that one. Yeah, that is hermetic containment. Yeah. So that would be mine. Jared, what do you what do you got? Fifty ether. So I, I did my research in advance. You can scroll all the way to the top. I, I didn't uh, I didn't dig deep into the pockets, but the first one would be at fourteen point nine ETH. It's number two ninety eight. Okay. Yep. Just felt like this was a. It almost felt like a, a representation of an eye or an Oculus. I just I love the way the the blues and the reds played each other mm-hmm. with each other. It felt like um, an amazing deal at fourteen point nine. Then at fifteen ETH, I have three ninety four. Just something about the way that the the bow ties. I'm I'm really drawn into the way these things get elongated. It's chaotic and yet uh, calculated. Um, you know, you got the piano keys and the bow ties all all fighting for each other and kind of crowding out the, those blue accents. So that, that felt like a fun one. Then I'll splurge a little bit with going down to at eighteen point five ETH. I have a uh, number three eighty six. This one just felt a little bit different to me. I loved it because uh, these blues I, I think are it's more of like a royal blue instead of that Tiffany blue, and it has. Uh, a deeper presence amongst that uh, mint green background. It just, it, it looks beautiful. And then, um, you know, the way the, you kind of just got this little, little ring of bow ties on the outside. It felt like the, the perfect gentleman's tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Fantastic. I, I will go next. Uh, I am going to start actually, yeah, I actually really like this one, number 346 at 20 Ether. So I was going to create a, a triptych with some really beautiful backgrounds. So these probably have a lot of overpainting in general, but this one looks so cool, Harvey. I, it, to me, it reminds me of like a satellite almost. And here, like back here is like the shadow a little bit. Hmm. Uh, and just I uh, thought it was like a the Voyager in like the deep blue ocean looking for treasure hunting right there. Ah, okay. See, I was thinking above the ocean, but either way, some some exploration going on over here. And uh, have you seen the Ramsey Boys meme of this one? 
he's turned it into a piano and he's got a it's like a piano from above and some guy's playing he's animated oh i see like this is the seat and the yeah yeah it's a great one yeah no i haven't seen that but no i i love that and and just the colors just really pop on that one so i picked that one up for 20 and then i'd snag two for 15 ish one is i really i think this background color i just haven't seen it that frequently in the collection i really like it it's a it's a beautiful brown Um, number 36 I will. No, sorry. Thank you, Jared. That's number 36. And the first one that I pointed out was number 346. And I will uh, refrain from making any brown jokes, even though that's uh, that's probably OK for me. Um, and then finally, number 298, the same one you picked, Jared, the background. I just I just love it. If I was just thinking about pairing these backgrounds, 298, 36 and uh, 346. So those those are my three. But there's uh, there's just so many. That are just so so good. Uh, ah, that's the hard part about this game. Uh, yeah, so that's that's it for Fontana itself. Um, Can I ask one question. I think for for Harvey, the you know the the metadata on this one is fairly. I'll call it sparse with only four traits. Is there anything in there in the algorithm that you would highlight or want to share with maybe the listenership that? Uh, to be on the lookout for maybe that any little Easter eggs that you got in there. There was a lot of things I could have put in, the, you know, in the traits that I did and I chose not to. <laughs> what would it be? You did point out that this sort of like the ultramarine blue. It, I think that's pretty rare. <laughs> and the, the one of that, yeah, there's not much. If you go up a little bit, I mean, it's, it's a big chunk of ultramarine blue. And that one, that one, the one that Jared, picked out no sorry uh, it was on the jade background sorry back down again that one yeah number three eight six uh, good left yeah yeah so that ultramarine blue is going to be very rare just because usually it gets it'll get um the only way to get that color in fontana is it, it if it's an accent because it will, won't escape the, the, the purple killer it will usually get culled off. But, um, yeah, I stared at the collection a lot. I've, I've gone through it numerous times, and, and that was one that that popped to me. Right, so that's an obvious, like, there's not many accents. There's not many fontanas with that particular kind of shade of blue in it, um, although I can see one, another one further down. But um, really tiny bow ties are probably, like, when they're crisp and easy, and easy to see, they're probably quite unusual, I guess. Um, just because the typical range doesn't include those really, really tiny ones. Yeah, I'd have to give that question some thought. I don't, I don't know off the top of my we'll head. We'll follow up with you because I, I know there's something there lurking, Harvey. You know us. We're always trying to to tease out some of the stuff that isn't readily apparent to everybody. Right, yeah. Um, well, it, you know, Harvey, the, the, the fans will find it. Uh, that's one of the, the cool things about this space, I think is that people are going to dig in and start collecting in all sorts of different ways and creating their own little traits out of it, which maybe we'll have a, a piano trait. Anyone that looks like it could be a, a physical piano in there. Right. Might be a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, this is why I didn't include many traits, just because I wanted the community to find, like I wanted community emergent traits, and I really did want to encourage people to put value on things that they liked 
rather than just could give some metric to. So, P, if you want to scroll down to the 84.7 ETH range, <laughs> Wait, I think this the is kind of list like price a, at 80. Yeah, yeah, it's more of like an FU listing, in my opinion, right there. I, I always find these ones fairly fun. It's like the, the ones that almost have just the opposite. Instead of having that, uh, you know, that flow potential six, like super involved, you get these very uh, minimalist type pieces where you get, you know, the one we're looking at on screen is number 29. And it's this beautiful green background with just almost looks like one one lonely piano key. Like it got vandalized somewhere. <laughs> this piece is kind of interesting. It was sitting on the floor for a long time and changed hands a number of times. And I think it was just because there's another piece, right, with, with no elements on it whatsoever, and it's a similar color. So I think in comparison to that one, this one just looks like not quite as exciting. But I, I like this piece. I have a soft, soft spot for it because it's like the first step. <laughs> it's the first step of complexity, you know. Yeah, no, it, I... And, and the one sitting on the floor right now, number 498, is almost feels like the same where you have this like, uh, you know, it's basic and I don't mean that disrespectfully in design, but yet it's it's like beautiful. And, and that one in particular, if you click into it, just the the amount of what I call sketch lines in the background are are like so yeah. beautiful. This is one that I feel like would print in a physical print like mm. ridiculously well. And when it's hanging on somebody's wall, they're going to be like, damn, what is this? But you know, on your iPhone, it, it it doesn't present as well. So that that's kind of like I call them minimalist pieces. I, there's a couple in in the collection that just feel like they're uh, they're they're ripe for that three story Samsung projection. That that's what it needs in order to get the love it needs. Right. Absolutely. Well, we we will link to those, and uh, I think we should go ahead and wrap it since we we have a couple hard stops coming up here. Harvey, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really, really appreciate it. We would love to have you back on at any time. Maybe we'll talk about Vellum. Uh, Maybe maybe real fast, uh, I can go ahead and plug Vellum. That's your next project. It's coming out towards the end of January. Not a lot of details out yet, correct? Right. There may be an announcement actually later today. This bright moments call when I when it gets, but it's going to be yeah, it's going to be with I can say it's with bright moments. It's going to be the end of January, it's, and it's going to be in uh, New York City. Fantastic, fantastic. So we will link uh, folks to your uh, Twitter. Uh, we'll put a link to the Discord channel and Art Blocks, so folks can hop down there and, and find you. Anywhere else you would uh, want folks to try to find you. My site is just my regular site, patent.co. It's pretty comprehensive. It's got a lot of work on it. I try to keep it up to date. It's also got a bunch of algorithms and stuff. Sort of like um, I've just published a part of the site where people can go back and look at earlier versions of Fontana, the algorithm. So um, I'm going to do that for all my projects from now on. That's so cool. People, people are going to love that. We really appreciate you doing that. All right. So uh, then I'll say from the Collector's Corners team, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We really appreciate you listening. Thank you again, Harvey, for taking all the time to explain Fontana and the time to make it. It's a fantastic story, man. We're so glad that we had a chance to meet you. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's been a real pleasure. Well-deserved. Thank you to our Marfa doppelganger. You were everywhere we were. (laughs) All right. We'll see everybody. 
Thank you for tuning into Collector's Corner. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you like this episode and want to help us out, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on YouTube. Please also follow us on Twitter for announcements as we expand to other social and content platforms. Our Twitter handle is at collectors underscore XYZ. We'd also love to hear any feedback you have. So please comment or reach out. We're always striving to be more useful and get better so we can help you in your collecting journey. The Collector's Corner team and their guests are not registered investment advisors. All views expressed on this podcast are personal opinions and are not specific inducements to make particular investments or investment strategies and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. This show is solely for informational and entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, please consult a professional.